The table is where life happens. It's where imagination runs wild. Where lessons are learned. And wonders are built. The table is where time can stop. Where wounds are comforted. And freedom begins. It's where we find peace. And we laugh till it hurts. The table is where we gather with family, new and old, to share stories to nourish our bodies, to enrich our souls. The table is where we give thanks and where we remember what great gifts We are looking at Dinner with Jesus. And if this feels like it's been a long series, like we've been eating a lot with Jesus, it's because it has been. I normally preach series that are like four or five Sundays long. That's about as much as I can stand. But uh, this one has gone on like seven, eight Sundays. And here's the reality. We could keep going on for another five, six, seven Sundays because in the Gospels, Jesus eats a lot. And he eats a lot with other people, of course. And we learn a lot from these meals, from these dinners with Jesus. And I hope that's something that's sinking in as, uh, as we go through this. But here's an interesting point. For most of the meals, Jesus is a guest at the meal, and he's not hosting the meal, right? Why is that? Well, because foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, right? So he has no house. He doesn't host people in his house in that way. Uh, he goes as a guest. That actually gives me a lot of um, encouragement as I think about hospitality, because some of us are a little bit anxious sometimes when we have people over to our house. I don't know about you, but when our kids were growing up and they saw me and Christine cleaning the house, what, what would they ask? Who's coming over? It's like, well, sometimes we have to clean the house just because, but yes, it just so happens that someone's coming over, and we have a fair bit of anxiety having people over. One of the beautiful things that Jesus models for us in this relationship of hospitality is that we can learn to be a good guest. Well, Jesus wasn't always a good guest, but we can learn to be a good guest and engage in this process of hospitality. But the passage that Marissa read for us uh, today Jesus is going to be the host, and that's a change. That's different. As we look at this Passover meal, Jesus is now the host. He's hosting his friends, his disciples at this Passover meal. Now, this is not just an everyday meal. We get that as we read through uh, the passage of Scripture. This is the Passover meal. This is very extraordinarily important uh, to Jewish faith, both then and now. 
And so we see the importance because this meal is mentioned in all four Gospels in significant detail as we go through this. This was a meal of remembrance, remembering slavery in Egypt and remembering freedom from that slavery. So incredibly important meal here. And in order to prepare the meal, the whole city got involved in preparing the meal. When I say the whole city, what they would do is they would repair all the roads, they would fix all the bridges. I was thinking maybe in Calgary we could have Passover, get our roads fixed. Get our <laughs> but this is what they do. The whole infrastructure would change in order to prepare for Passover. Um, interesting thing, all the tombs would be freshly painted, whitewashed. And the reason for that is you had all these pilgrims coming in and you didn't want them accidentally touching a tomb and becoming defiled and not being able to participate in the Passover feast. And so even tombs were taken care of and were whitewashed so people could see them. And then there'd be household pres uh, preparations. There'd be the special cleaning that would happen. And even a ceremonial for two days, they would search for any scrap of leaven, like yeast, right? You know how small yeast is? They, they would look all through the house. It would be more of a ceremonial cleansing of every scrap of, of leaven, of yeast, out of the house as part of the preparation for the meal. And they would select the lamb. And that poor little lamb would stay with them until slaughter day, almost become a family member, right? This was a big, big deal. And the numbers in Jerusalem would swell, like the numbers that would come because this was a pilgrimage feast. And the goal of every Jewish person would be to have Passover at least once in their lifetime in Jerusalem. And if they lived outside the city and at a distance and they had Passover, they'd always say, next year in Jerusalem. That was the hope. And so the numbers in the city were massive. Just to give you an idea, and don't take this too literally because different people have tried to calculate the numbers, but I found this interesting. Uh, the historian Josephus tells us that the number of slaughtered lambs was 256,500. I don't know how he knew, knows that or how he researched that, but here's why it's important. The minimum number for a Passover celebration was 10. And so if you multiply that by the lambs that they knew were slaughtered, you're looking at at least over 2,500,000 pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. Now, just to give an idea, uh, sort of a relative idea, the city of Rome was one of the first, if not the first, city in the world to reach over a million people. And at this time, Rome was about 1.2 million people. And so you can imagine 2.5 million people coming into Jerusalem. And that's not just the pilgrims. I mean, that's just the pilgrims. On top of that, Rome was extra paranoid about Jerusalem during this time. So all the special forces would be coming in, all the security forces, everybody else coming to keep the peace. And then you'd have this, this rise in, in uh, nationalism, right? As the Jewish people and their zealots would get together. And so just imagine the tension in the air as all these people were gathering for this very important feast. It's in the middle of that that our story takes place. But here's an interesting thing. It seems like in our passage, as we read it through carefully, that Jesus actually made some advanced preparation for the meal. He did this maybe without even the disciples knowing. He, he, he worked it out here, 
pardon me, arranged it with a person to use their upper room. And he told the disciples, the way you're going to discover the person I prearranged with, because you can't text or email or do anything like that, is when you go into town, what will you see? Did anybody pick up in the passage? You'll see a man carrying water, right? And you're like, there's 2.5 million pilgrims and all the other people, and I'm supposed to see a man carrying water. Aren't there going to be a lot of people carrying water? Yeah, but they're all going to be women because that was normally what women did. And so to see a man carrying water would have stood out. It'd be like today saying, when you go downtown, look for a man who's asking for directions. That stands out, right? Because you don't expect it. Or maybe you could say, look for the person who has the umbrella out when it's not raining. Uh, it's something like that. This would have been something that the disciples would go, oh, okay, that would be curious. There he is. And they'd spot it, and they go and they realize that Jesus has made preparations in advance. And it's because he had to be very careful during this, these last few days that he didn't literally pull the trigger too early. He was already pushing the buttons of the powers that be, and he wanted to make sure that things played out according to plan. And so this is kind of clandestine action that's happening uh, within our passage, as Jesus has very carefully made these arrangements. All of that is what's happening here. But then we get to the meal right? And the Passover meal isn't like a normal meal. It's not a free-flowing meal. It's not a meal that you go up for seconds, right? It's not a meal that you're free just to make small talk or conversation or, you know, how about those flames? There's, there's none of that. It's not a casual meal. It's a carefully scripted remembrance dinner that follows a particular pattern. At one point in the meal, they'll take a bit of lettuce. Some of you have gone through reenactments of these kind of meals and dip it in some salty water and, and eat it. That's not normal, right? <laughs> you don't normally do that. But to remember the, the bitterness of being a slave in Egypt, there's all, everything has a symbol and everything has a preset symbol. You don't deviate from that. You don't make stuff up on the fly. This is not an ad-lib supper. You don't get creative with this. You don't one year come and say, hey, how about this year we have roast beef, right? It's not like that. It's very, very carefully scripted. And in the middle of the meal, Jesus changes the script. That's the thing we're meant to get. We're not shocked by it because we've said the words over and over again, but I think the disciples would have been shocked because what Jesus ends up doing and saying is either blasphemy or it's the truth, right? Jesus makes the meal all about him. That's shocking. We thought this meal was about deliverance, about the redemption of God's people coming out of slavery and coming into freedom. And Jesus says, that's me. I am the deliverer. I am the savior. I am the one that is ultimately going to set you free. This is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. And the disciples would have been shocked and maybe a little terrified. You don't change the script like that, Jesus. But he did. And we're still doing it today, aren't we? So that's what we discover as we sit down at the meal together. And Jesus takes this bread and this cup, these sacraments, 
and gives them a whole new meaning. We use that word sacrament sometimes. As good Baptists, we like to use the word ordinance because we like order, right? But the word sacrament's a good word to use as well. And it's not to meant, meant to be a highly religious, mysterious, mystical kind of word. Uh, a sacrament is really simple. It's, it's taking something that's very ordinary, an outward sign of something, and recognizing that it can have deep internal meaning. That's what sacraments do for us. And I think we have sacraments not just here on the table before us today and not just at the dinner table that Jesus gathered with his disciples, but we have sacraments in our own home. How many of you have a junk drawer? (laughs) Why don't you throw that junk out? Sometimes as you go through the junk, you realize, oh, I can't get rid of that because what does it do? It brings up a memory of something that's important. Christine and I actually have this little tin that we've been collecting stuff in for 30 years of marriage and a few years before that as we've been remembering things that are important to us. And uh, the tin is still pretty small small for some reason. We put small things in it. Um, But in that tin, I could have brought it today, I didn't. But in that tin, there is a 32-year-old lemon candy. I'm sure it's still good. Um, I won't test that theory out. And I won't tell you in what way that lemon candy is a sacrament to me entirely, but it has to do with my relationship with my wife, in fact. Okay, it reminds us of our first kiss. So there you go, ah, right? You're supposed to say ah. Um, And I can never throw it out. I won't get into the details about why the lemon candy reminds me of that, but so... We have ordinary objects that remind us of extraordinary things. And really, that's what's happening here as we gather at the table. I'm going to tell you that the bread that you're going to eat today, if you participate in communion, uh, I bought it at co-op yesterday. And I put it in the freezer for a little while. It's, It's a very ordinary thing, right? Nothing is extraordinary. These ordinary elements become sacraments. Why? Because they remind us of the extraordinary sacrifice of Jesus. And that's what they come to us as. Uh, John Calvin, I don't often quote John Calvin, but here's a good one from him. Uh, Jesus has given us a table at which to feast, not an altar on which a victim is to be offered. He has not consecrated priests to make sacrifice, but servants to distribute the sacred feast. And that's what we do today. As servants, as the servers, when they do come up and they distribute, we're distributing this sacred feast that we all get to participate in us. These sacraments that speak of love. John 15, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. These sacraments that speak to us of freedom and forgiveness. Ephesians 1, He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. And these sacraments which remind us of peace, not the kind of peace that the world gives, a peace that is beyond our understanding. In Colossians 1, he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. The Apostle Paul, when he picks up this story of the Passover and he applies it to the church in Corinthians, he adds something to the whole script a little bit here. And here's one of the things that he says. He says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do what? 
we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So the sermon today is on the table. It really is. It's this proclamation of God's love, of freedom, of forgiveness, of the peace that is only found in Jesus Christ.